Welcome to the Empowered Investor Podcast. Have you ever felt overwhelmed by the sheer volume of choices and voices telling you how to plan or invest for your future? With his straightforward approach, host Keith Matthews of Tulette Matthews & Associates cuts through the noise to help you create a winning action plan for you and your family. The decision-making framework discussed in this show can transform you and your investment experiences and will increase your odds of becoming financially secure. Learn more and subscribe today at tma-invest.com. Welcome to the Empowered Investor Podcast. I'm going to be your host today. My name is Marcelo Taboada, and I'm joined again today by Reginald Pierre-Louis. So we're going to dive into part two of the uh, Myth and Taxes uh, podcast. So Reginald, welcome back. Thank you again for your time. Thank you again for having me, the opportunity. Okay, perfect. So Reginald, part one was a juicy orange in terms of subject. Now we're dealing with a melting ice cream. So it's still very juicy, but it could be very messy. So we're going to dive into, it could be a controversial subject, but I think it's, it's going to be a good conversation. So before diving into the subject, how do you define being rich and being wealthy without politicizing the question? I ask because it is very relative. We are all richer and less rich than someone. And there is also how we feel. Somebody can be very rich, but consider themselves middle class. And somebody can be just fine financially, but still feel rich. I love that question because we hear a lot. Uh, in the past election, we, we heard it a lot too. Let's tax the rich. That's always what we hear. And again, with my student, when we talk about this, because sometimes I'm trying to bring in class, I'm trying to be sometimes more political in order to you know get the conversation and even controversial. Let, let's tax the rich. Okay, cool. But what is a rich? How do we define rich? Are we based ourselves on the gross income? Like one to 10%, the 10 biggest uh, gross income of the population, they are the rich and the other are not. The 50 highest gross income of the population are rich, the other are not. Are we looking at the net income? Because there's a gross income, but there's the net income. Do we consider the expenses or the, the in-house situation uh, and I'm going to give you some example about that. <laughs> or do we base ourselves on something else? Do we base ourselves on assets, on the, the wealth instead of the income? Or I like the discussion I had with, with Ruben. He said, like, access to a bad, uh, wasn't Ruben, was uh, one of the, one of my colleagues that we spoke about it and said, are we rich because we have access to a basket of services? Is that what defines a rich person? Because Maybe I'm, I don't make a lot of money and I don't own a lot of assets, but if I have access to free care, free daycare, free tuition fees, free everything, well, am I rich? And I have a good pension plan, am I rich? If I'm able to travel two, three times a year, am I considered a rich person? Or if I have a big retirement fund, a big pension plan, am I rich? Because I have a huge pension plan from my employer, should that be considered one of my assets? That was a big question in the last election. So it's really, really hard to define what is a rich person. And let's make some clear example. I'm going to give you some example, and you're going to tell me if, uh, well, you don't need to, but we're going to discuss are we rich, or, or, is the person rich or not. Let's say I'm giving you this profile. Single, no kid, living with their parents, no rent, makes 80,000 gross income per year. Is that person rich? It's a good question. Another situation, a couple, one source of income, two kids, one is handicapped, also a caregiver for one of the parents. The only person that, who makes income makes 
more than 200 per year, let's say 220 per year, is that person rich? Coupled with two salaries of 60 grand per year, a house that they receive that they receive as an heritage in Westmount, worth two million, but it was heritage. So secondary house with a, a worth of seven hundred thousand and a mortgage of four hundred fifty thousand. No kid. Are they considered rich? And every situation on the first one, you have someone who is single with almost no expenses and makes eighty thousand per year. You can even drop that to fifty thousand per year or even thirty thousand per year, but he has no expenses, no rent. The food is from the parent. He lives with his parents. That's 30K in your pocket. The other one is a couple with one source of income. So yes, if you look at the gross income, they make more than 200K, but they have no one else is working and no one else has source of income. They have two children and one of them is handicapped. I know people who have handicapped children. It costs a lot. And that's why most of the time only one parent work because the other one has to take care of the, uh, the street. It's, it's really, really, really not easy when you have a, a disabled kid or, or you're in a situation like that. And also we had that your caregiver for one of the parents. Believe me, ask that couple, 200K is not a lot. <laughs> They're going to tell you that 200K is not a lot. <laughs> and there's also the, there's not only the cost associated with taking care of, of a person like that, but there's also the time and the emotional cost. Yes. Yeah, yeah, they, they, yes, all that, that comes together. So if you base only on gross income, you might tax that person more because she makes more than he, she, the, the person makes more than 200K per year. But when you took into consideration or situation, it's totally different. And the last situation, you have a couple who doesn't have a huge gross income. They're in the average, but they have a huge wealth that they have a house of 2 million and they also have some net worth on the, the secondary uh, residence. So do you tax themselves on that? In Quebec, in Canada, we choose to tax on the gross income. It's not everywhere like that. In Europe, in some country, they do tax on the gross income, but they also tax on the wealth value. Uh, it's different. Net worth. Yes, exactly. It's a little bit different because they don't tax the capital gain since they tax the net worth. Uh, here, they tax uh, here. When you, the succession. Uh, Inheritance. Succession. Inheritance or the estate. The estate, sorry. Yeah. So the estate here, well, first, when someone deceased, they're taxed on all they have. Uh, if they have a house, there's some exception, but they're taxed on everything they have at fair market value. So saying that when you die, there's no tax, this is totally untrue. Yes. Uh, that could be another myth that we're going to debunk at the time, but it's totally untrue. But, uh, and even if you don't, if you're not careful, you can even, in that situation, you can even pay up to 70, 80% income tax. This is one of the only situations where it's, it can go as high as that. But so that's why, like, being rich is hard to define. And I'm going to ask you the opposite question. I don't find any other words, but I'm going to say it like clearly. What is, Poor, because we always talk about we always talk about the rich. What is a poor person? Yeah, that's a great question, and it's I think being rich and being poor is there's two aspects, right? There's the hard facts about it, and then there's the the way we feel. So somebody who makes three hundred thousand may feel poor because it's a known thing that NBA players, for example, that make less than their teammates feel poor, and and that's just because of who they have around. So there's the relative aspect of being poor. But I think when it comes to defining it, it has to be linked to a hard data point. 
And that's why, you know, like when you look at the World Bank or, you know, any government, when they're looking at the world poverty rates, so to speak, they have to look at, at the hard facts and something like, you know, how much does that person make a day or per year? And then they draw the poverty line and they say, okay, if you're below this line, you're poor. If you're above this line, you're not poor, right? You're not quite rich there, but it could be also be, there's <laughs> a funny story about, I can remember what government was it. It, it was an autocrat somewhere in Latin America that said, oh, we're going to wipe out the 50% of poverty. And what he did is he's just, he's just lowered the line of poverty. And he said, yeah, we eradicated poverty by 50%. So, wow. Okay. That's uh, <laughs> well, uh, I kind of disagree with the solution, but hey, right. it works. The result is there. Right. But, uh, <laughs> so you get my point, right? Like we have yes. to have some tangible, hard data that we can point to and say, okay, this person, this is how we define. And again, you know, I understand people have a hard time dealing with nuances. And when you draw a number and you say, okay, if you make above this point, you're rich. If you're made below, you're poor. I think that's easier for people to understand. And, you know, I put myself in the shoes of the government. You have to have something like this because running a government, running a bureaucracy is a hard thing. And there's going to be mistakes, there's going to be missteps, and it's just hard. Yes, and that is an exercise that I like to do with my students. Is let's say we take a, a section of the law and say, okay, so we don't like this one. How would you say it? And in the last podcast, we, we talk about the you know uh, common law partners. This is usually the exercise that I use. Like, okay, I'm giving you the power now. You can decide the law. Write me a definition of what is a common law partner or even what is a children, what is a child. Because some years back, there was a credit for children. So it, now it's, it's been abolished, but back in the days, and I, I do the same thing. What is a child? And it's funny because when I was doing conference to a crowd that were adults, what is a child? I was someone that costs a lot. That's the thing that I, it was, well, they were contents, or it was based on finance. <laughs> what is a child? A child is 15,000 per year. <laughs> that's what a child is. <laughs> but that's yeah. an exercise. It's hard. It's easy to critique the law, to criticize the law, but it's hard to make one. And that is an exercise I'm trying to make. Like, okay. And it's really easy to spread the word that rich people should pay more tax, but it's way harder when you really think about it. Like, how are we going to do it? Because every tax system has some flaws. Let's say you tax on the revenue, well, you don't take care necessarily of the expenses and the situation, then you make deduction, tax credit, and everything. Let's say you tax on net worth, well, if you have inheritance, inheritance of lands and houses and properties, but doesn't mean that you have the money to pay for the property tax and everything, so you will need to sell. So that's a way that you can force the transmission of wealth between person because you tax the wealth. So every situation, every system has is advantage and disadvantage. Last thing is, because we, we see that rich don't pay taxes, but we need to be mindful also that some people with low income also abuse of the system. And it's sad because it's the middle class, the working class that receive all the consequences of these because we see rich don't pay taxes, but let's be honest, and <laughs> you can see my character to this, we all know someone who is not working and giving some jobs on the black market and everything and receive all the money and all the tax benefit, tax incentive from the government and works under the table at the same time. And you're like, man, that costs us a lot. That for me, it's even, it's the same level as a rich that doesn't pay taxes. The two extremes are not good, but we we'll always talk about the biggest one. But the two ones, there's also the people that are abusing the system and giving all the tax incentive and working under the table and when they are able to work or, or don't go work. So 
the two system it's hard to define what is a rich people what is a poor people but when you look at some data and this data come from la charles recherche de sherbrooke sur la fiscalité les finances publiques donc la la charte de recherche en finance et en fiscalité de sherbrooke okay so that's the university of sherbrooke yes the, well they have a charte de recherche and uh, they're doing statistic and economic stuff and uh, there is a really good book which uh, is a really good uh, tax specialist, economist, I uh, really respect that. Someone known across uh, in the community, tax community, someone really well respected and he's at the head there. So he gave some great statistics and we're looking at in 2020, the threshold to be in the first 1% in Canada in the income is above 280,000. Okay. You know, we're talking about when you make more than 222, your tax at 53.51 in Quebec, So in Canada, in order to be in the top 1% rich, you need to make more than 280,000. Okay, so what you're saying is if, let's say, I make $280,000, I'll be considered the 1% in Canada. Yes. Okay. People might be amazed. People think it's 1 million, 2 million. Not a lot of person make that much money. It's not. And to be in the 10% group, it's over 101,000. So if you make more than 100,000, you're in the 10% rich. Wow. I'm surprised by that. And this was in 2020. So in Quebec, the threshold to be in one person, you have to be above 242,000. So it's a bit lower than the country average. Yes, because when you look in the rest country, the, well, the life there is also more expensive. Right, right. right. <laughs> I, I get that. That makes sense. So in Quebec, so let's say like in the top one person, you make more than 253 and the highest tax level is at 222. So there's like maybe what, two, three percent of the population that can say that portion of their taxes, taxes 53%. And in Quebec, to be in the 10%, you need to make more than you needed, because it's three years ago, you needed to make more than 91,000. And I'm guessing that's going to be adjusted for inflation. So it probably be a few dollars off from 2020, but we get the point. Exactly. But when you look at last year, when the Quebec government gave $500 to everybody under 100,000, He gave that uh, 500. So he gave it to, I think it was 94% or 95% of the population. So 94 to 95% of the population. So that numbers are not that way off, uh, even if there's two, three years. So they, they're pretty close. And what hurts the most is in order to be above the 50%, to be above average in Quebec, you need it to make more than 30,000. That's low. That's really low. Wow. And in Canada, well, Quebec and Canada, Quebec was 27.7,000. And Canada was 28.5,000. So yes, it's really low. Now this is the, the median, the median, the, the median revenue. But when you look at the average revenue, because average revenue is not necessarily the people that are the that 50% and over. It's really you take the highest and the lowest, combine them and divide right. it by so two. So median, median is right smack in the middle. Average is like it's a combination of both, and then you you find what's the average, right? Exactly. So in Quebec, the average in 2021, it was around 55, 56,000. Wow. I'm surprised, to be honest with you. This is not... Uh, and when you look at the other country, the other provinces, the highest one, I think it was, well, Nunavut, but it's because the jobs there are like in the mines and everything. So they're, they're really high pay job. But uh, we're not even the lowest. Il Spence is at 50,000 in 2021. So when you look at that, what is a rich... Well, if you look only gross income-wise, you could say that, well, over 60 might be rich. You're above average, you're above the 50%. So 
So would that be considered rich? But if you ask someone who makes 60,000, they're going to tell you, no, no, I'm not rich at all, especially with the rent now and everything. And I'm not saying that at 60, you're rich. I'm just saying that when you look at data, it's really hard to say what is a rich, what is a poor. Perfect. I guess that's why we have tax brackets in like that tax ladder that we talked about at the, in the first uh, episode is that it corrects for this, right? And the more you make, the more you're going to pay, but on the proportion that you pay. So with that, let's jump to the second question that I had for this episode, which is, I hear it a lot. The rich don't pay taxes. Myth or truth? It's false. Now, do they pay enough taxes? That should be the question. And again, that depends. If you ask the rich, they're going to say, we pay enough. There was a little article you saw when the, the guy that works into a bar and the, the guy that makes more money pays most of the bill, but if it's not there, there's no drink at all. So the rich are going to say, well, you already pay enough. But if you ask someone who's benefiting of all the services, they're going to say, you need to pay more. And that's going to be a debate that's going to last forever. So when you look into proportion, the rich do pay more than what they represent for the tax recipes for the, for the government. Are they paying enough? That's, That's political, and I cannot say anything, but I'm always talking income tax-based, not sales tax. Mm-hmm. Not capital gains, not dividends, all that. Yeah. Uh, capital gains are in it, dividends are in it, but uh, I'm, I'm not talking sales tax or property tax, deduction at source and everything. This is another thing. But Income Tax Act is based on the income. So if there's no income, there is no tax. But even though the rich person usually is going to spend more too. So by spending more, they're going to pay other taxes in a different way. Sales tax, luxury taxes that has been uh, introduced uh, one year or two ago. Generally, which also, yes, it's true that generally someone with money will have access to a tax planner who can optimize the tax situation. But again, you still have the CRE and the Revenue Quebec that are watching these people. And believe me, they're rich they are being watched. And it's always a question of perspective. So if I have a salary and I pay 200K on a salary of 450K, that's like 45%. And if I have a dividend of 1 million and I pay 400,000, well, my average tax rate will be 40%. It's less than the person with a salary, let's say the person paid 200 of 450, which is around 40, 45%, I think. So yes, you can say, oh, so the dividend, you paid less, you avoid the, the income tax act, your fraud and everything. Wait, because if you receive a dividend, that means that the business, the company paid taxes too. And that's what people don't always think. Correct. That's why you get the credit, right? Exactly. That's why the dividend is taxed less than the salary because the company already paid taxes on it. So it's called the integration principle. So that's why it's always a question of perspective. And you need to be careful about uh, in the media about that. Because if I'm only giving you, oh, you receive a dividend and paid 40%, someone with salary paid 45%, it's not fair. Wait, look at the context and the big situation. Correct. correct. And it's easy to, you know, to just to get controversial and get people going, especially when we're talking about taxes and rich and poor people. All right, Reginald, thank you so much for that info. That's a, we're having a, a good discussion on this. You know, I also pulled here a chart that we're going to share in the notes. It shows the income distribution across many different income ranges and how much taxes that bracket or that range paid in Canada. So, for example, there's a, we have ranges that go from zero to fifty thousand of income, fifty to a hundred, a hundred to one hundred fifty, one hundred fifty 
250 and then 250 and plus. So we know from the statistics, and this comes from the Canada Revenue Agency, that the chart was produced by CIBC. It's a nice one because very visual. So it pretty much says that people who made 250,000 and more paid 23% of all taxes in Canada. So you look at the lower bracket, which is 150 to 250,000, and it's 14%. We go one step lower, it's 100 to 150,000. That cohort of income range paid 18%. So when you look at the taxes paid by people who made $100,000 plus, it totals 50% of all taxes in Canada. I'm not surprised by these statistics. It goes with everything that we talked about before. Rich people, again, how do we define rich, do pay taxes. Now, again, and some people might even going to say like, everybody pays enough taxes. We have too much services. That could be another thing that we could talk about and say, because you're in business, you know, in a business, and I'm thinking about, let's say the government of Canada is a business and every business, in order to make a profit or to be profitable, you have two ways. You can either increase your revenue or reduce your expenses. Now, revenue are the, are the, are the taxes. Everybody struggles with the taxes. We are taxed a lot. Now, we can continue to increase them or simply ask people to pay more or anything, or we can look at the expenses and say, well, do we have any way to maybe reduce these expenses? That's going to be some services that are going to be cut. And this is, again, a collective choice. We have choices. The easiest way for sure is just to increase the tax, but that's going to, like, you might not get reelected. Yeah. Sometimes we have, uh, we say the solutions are good solutions, but they're politically costly. And I think that's what the government faces sometimes when it comes to taxation, that we know what the solution is, but they're thinking about the next election. You know what they say, the government's first job is not to serve the people, it's to stay in power, right? Yeah, I agree with it. <laughs> I like that, actually. <laughs> I like that. All right. So let's move into the next one. So it goes something like this. When large families or wealthy individuals make donations to a museum or a hospital, for example, we hear that they are doing it for the tax receipt because they will get their donation back with a tax return. Myth or truth? Partially true. Okay. Partially true. Because yes, when you make a donation, you receive a tax credit and you save some tax. But that is the goal of the tax credit. It goes with it. The tax system is a tool that can be used in order to modify the behaviors of the people. So we talked a lot about environment, the green tax and everything. Uh, so a couple of years back when you did a renovation on your house, if it was a green renovation, you can have a tax credit. So it's an incentive to help people, to motivate people to go green. In the last federal budget, there was a lot of uh, tax credit for uh, renewable energy, clean energy, and all this stuff, a clean tech and all this stuff. So the tax credit for the nation is there to motivate people to give to nonprofit organization. So yes, for sure, you have a tax credit for that and you have a tax economy, but you also have the present of a financial sacrifice. Yes. In my career, I've never saw a donation that gives back the entire amount in tax of the donation or even more. I've never saw that. If it's possible, I would like to learn it. But as far as I'm concerned, you cannot. If you give more than $200, your tax credit can go up to 50%. Is there some other way to optimize it a little bit more? Yes. But can you get a tax refund or a tax deduction, a, a tax economy of 100%? Never saw that. 
So you can reduce the cost of your donation. But seeing that the cost would be nil or that someone is going to make money out of the nation. Now, <laughs> again, the other question would be how much of your donation actually helps? How does the NPO use that money? That's another story. That's a different conversation. Yeah. Exactly. And you're going to see sometimes people with a lot of finance resources, they're going to create their own foundation. And they're going to give like 10 million to that foundation. And people will say and that foundation is going to use the revenue on that donation to give to other charities. Again, some people are saying, well, that 10 million is not taxed and you have a tax credit on it. So that 10 million is a shell and everything. Always a question of perspective. Because yes, that 10 million is not spent right away. But remember when they say, do you prefer someone to give you a fish or someone to teach you how to fish? That's yes. a big difference. So if I give 10 million to an NPO and a nonprofit organization and they spend it in three years, well, then they need another 10 million. But if I give 10 million to an NPO or foundation and I say the money out of this one, like 1 million per year, I'm giving it to the NPO and also I'm taking a little bit of my capital, let's say 3% per year. Well, my capital is going to be there for a lot of time. And usually people who has a lot of financial resources and make foundation, they want their foundation to outlive them. Correct. So that's what happens. Now, should the 10 million be used quicker? Should it, should only the revenue be used? Is it true they have a tax rate and tell me the 10 million is in the foundation? Yes, but technically, even there, there's some people that are frauding and everything. Yes, they are. Yes, there are some people, sadly, who cannot do nothing about that. But it's not the majority, really not the majority. So most of people, they're doing the foundation, they have good intention. And yes, they're going to use that money for good NPO and everything. Perfect. I think that summarizes well. And you know, bottom line is, if you, if you donate some to a, a foundation or a charity, $200, yeah, you get 50% credit, but you still have to put $100 out of pocket, right? Totally. All right. So that uh, we're going to wrap up the taxes and, you know, do rich people pay taxes? I think that was a very good summary. And thank you for providing all that information, uh, Reginald. That was really good. So now let's talk about something like very important as well. So we, as a business, I'm, I'm sure yourself, you teach uh, entrepreneurs and business owners. So we, we have a lot of clients who are business owners. So we have the following myth. I will incorporate, like the rich, to save taxes. Does just having a company result in tax savings? Just having a company? No, it's false. <laughs> Incorporation does nothing. You need to run a business <laughs> in order to, to have some tax advantage and a legitimate one. A business can be run individually, the self-employed, by a corporation, by a partnership, even in a rare occasion by a trust. But the corporation is only a vehicle that is used to run a business like a self-employed person. And a corporation or self-employed or partnership, the same expenses can be deducted in the company. It's not that because you have a corporation, suddenly needed more expenses that are available. If you're self-employed, you have the right to the same expenses as the corporation do. So you need you need a legitimate reason or a legitimate business. I mean, me as an employee, I can't just say, oh, I'm going to incorporate to pay less taxes. That it makes no sense, right? One thing I would say, if someone has to remember one thing from that, from what I'm saying today in that podcast. <laughs> to never, ever incorporate an employee. That's the worst thing you can do because if you incorporate an employee, it's called, say in French, I don't know in English, entreprise de prestation de service personnel. So it's personal services business, something like that. And it, first, you cannot have all the expenses as a regular business as. 
You cannot, your tax rate is going to be higher than a regular company. You're going to be taxed on the dividend. Uh, it's it's a, the worst thing you can do. Just don't do it. Just don't do it. We don't have the time to explain everything in that podcast, but just never incorporate. If you're an employee, do not incorporate yourself. And just saying in the contract, oh, the person is not an employee is not enough. Because in order to determine if you're an employee or a, a subcontractor, it's based on the fact of the situation, regardless of what you put in the contract. Okay. So like, again, just inform yourself, uh, talk to the professionals, don't do anything if, if you're not sure about. I think that's clear for me. <laughs> and is it always good to incorporate yourself? Because I think that was a little bit where the question was headed. Depend Incorporation, there's a lot of factors, a lot of questions to ask before incorporating someone. Yes, you have some, uh, and then sad to say it, but you have some uh, content lawyer that they incorporate everyone, you know, you want an incorporation, you want an incorporation, everybody gets an incorporation. It's not always the best thing to do. There are some things to, to analyze before. First thing, the cost of living of the taxpayer, because if you want to have tax advantage by incorporating, because the business has a lowest tax rate than you, you need to be able to let the money in the company. If you redraw all the money from the company with the integration principle, it's the same thing as being self-employed. It doesn't worth it. So the cost living of the, the taxpayer, the income is going to be another one, income that you're going to make. Because if you make 100000 per year and you need 100000 to live, again, it goes with the cost of living. It doesn't worth incorporating tax-wise. Now, on the legal side, maybe it's worth it for other reasons. But I'm talking tax-wise, if your income is similar to your cost of living, it doesn't worth it to incorporate. The nature of the business, the risk of the business. I had a friend who was self-employed who was doing uh, birthday parties for kids. He was bringing animals and stuff like that. I told him, like, you should incorporate. Even if you don't make 300000 out of it, it's just that there's kids involved. If one of the animals bites one of the kids, if there's something that happened or one of your employees stole something in a house or, you know, there's a risky business. Yes, you have insurance, but just be careful about that. Financial things to examine, commercial risk. I had a friend uh, who was doing import-export, uh, selling on Amazon and stuff. And in order to get an insurance in the States, he needed to have a company. He could not self-insure himself in the States. So that's a reason to incorporate, even if you don't have the income that goes with it because you need it to work your business. Or even if you're a mechanic or something, kind of worth it because you install a tire. One hour later, the car goes out and the tire just one on his own. You don't want to be sued or anything. You don't want your house to go through it. So kind of worth it to the, the car lose a tire, sorry. And kind of worth it to have a, an incorporation. The number of partners the residence of the partners. You have a non-resident and a partners and, and a partnering with you. You don't want a partnership. It can be a little bit co more complicated. So you will have a company that's gonna help you. So it's all the factors that it's a case by case analysis. Yes. Okay. That you're gonna look at. Yeah, because I think some people think, oh, I'm self-employed or I'm running a business on my own. I'm just gonna incorporate, right? And, and like you said, it there, we have to look at the whole picture to make sure that it's worth it. Totally. Okay. Perfect. Thank you for that. I think that's a myth that a lot of people get confused by and some people get hurt by it because they do it without knowing and you know they don't consult the right professional and then they end up with a big tax bill or unnecessary cost or even penalties and you don't want to be in that situation. Clearly. Okay. So the next one is I can expense the car expenses and other personal expenses in my company. The key words in what you said is personal. No, you cannot. 
<laughs> again, it's not because suddenly you have a company that everything passed through it. The only expenses that you can deduct is business related. I'm just just a little reading of the law. Just this, the only time I'm going to read the law. Don't be afraid. I won't do it again. <laughs> <laughs> you can cut. You can edit it if you want. But in order to deduct an expenses, this is what the law says required and computing the income of a taxpayer from a business or property. No deduction shall be made in respect of a monthly or expenses, except to the extent that it was made or incurred by the taxpayer for the purpose of gaining or producing income from the business or property. Perfect. And there's another condition which the expense needs to be reasonable. Now, reasonable, it's a question of fact, but usually it's not the problem. So when you read that, no expenses is allowed except if it is to gain or produce income from business or property. So if it's a personal expense, it doesn't produce or gain any income. So therefore, it's not deductible. And when there's a personal side of the expense, you always have to be careful because some might say, well, I'm paying someone to do the, the, the snow or to do my, the garden and everything so I can work. So it's business related. Nah, because you were already paid someone to do the snow, even if you were not working. And even same thing for the meal. Oh, I'm ordering food on the, on the lunch because I need to eat or I'm on the way. Well, you would have eat anyway. So the meals and, and uh, entertainment are always something tricky. When you go on a meal with someone, if it's business related, wrote on the invoice, as the invoice, ask for a pen for the waiter and put the name of the person, the business of the person, and just a couple of words on the purpose of the meal. That's just going to help you. Maybe attach a business card to the receipt of the person you met. You could. You could attach a business card. If someone sends you a gift for Christmas, you saw that in Christmas a lot, it would be a good thing to answer them. Just, hey, I received your gift. Thank you. Nah, nah, I hope you continue your business relation or something. That is can always be helpful for the person who's giving you the gift. Just to show that, hey, it's business related. It's not someone personal to me. It's just really... So, so that can always help. Because depending on the auditor that you will have, some can be very strict about that, especially if your meal is in the evening or the weekend. That doesn't pass. Well, no, well, it can pass, but it's it's hard. Especially if you if you have your wife with you or kids with you, or if it's February 14th. <laughs> pretty hard. <laughs> that makes total sense. And yeah, I, I think that's the one where a lot of people get it's a source of stress when you have a business, you know, you're running a few buildings or you have a business and you're expensing everything and you get audited, that can create a lot of stress and it may impair you from running the business properly on top of the emotional stress of that process. Yes. And we can have another podcast on the audit, but, <laughs> and never forget that the person that audits you is not an entrepreneur. No. And it's a person, it's a human. He can have his own conviction that he might not show you his own bias. Yes, it's supposed to be neutral, but it doesn't change that. It can have an effect. And I can tell you some stories another time about the the the, the, the audit, somebody that we had. But uh, sometimes, you know, it can be a religious background. The person, the, the sex of the person that is auditing you, the, the color of the person. The, uh, the, the, there's a lot of factors that can go into consideration in the uh, when, when there's an audit that you have to be mindful. And the, the first one is that the person is not an entrepreneur. So for that person, he, she is auditing you. If they see a meal on a Saturday night, oof, you have two strikes and you're about to get out. So you have one chance. And you're, you're, you're pretty much guilty till proven innocent, right? When you get audited. 
you're not supposed to be like that, but sadly, you are in certain cases, certain auditors, but that's another... Uh, <laughs> I don't want to get into trouble with the CRA of Revenue Quebec, so no, I'll no, use no. my that's fifth a, amendment. <laughs> you, you've done a good job. Just like uh, I think that the, the takeaway is, you know, be careful, be reasonable, and if in doubt, just consult a professional. So um, let's move to the uh, next question I have for you. Well, not a question, just statement that may be a myth or truth. You're going to tell us now. So... With a corporation, I can pay a salary to my spouse and children, and since they have a lower tax rate, I pay less taxes. True, but okay, you don't need a corporation. You need a business. Even if you're self-employed, you can pay a salary to your wife and uh, children. But the same criteria that we just spoke apply to here. So the salary must be reasonable. So let's say you take your children for cleaning and you pay them 200,000 per year, doesn't add up. I will do the cleaning for you if you give them 200,000 per year. So the salary must be reasonable and it should be paid for service rendered. That's the most important. You cannot pay a free salary. You cannot. If you do that and you get caught, Oof. you're going to have a double taxation plus penalties and interest. You don't want that. No, you don't want that. So you cannot pay free salaries. They need to work for you. And if they do actually work for you, yes, you can give them a salary. Okay. I think that's as clear as we can get. Perfect. So I think moving to the last question and on the same line, some people think that buying their personal residence or home in their company makes a lot of sense. Does it really? Another thing I want people to take out from this podcast, do not put your principal residence or even your secondary residence <laughs> and a corporation. I don't see, except if you receive bad information, I don't see any good reason to do so. Tell me why. Well, it's to avoid completely why. First, you will lose the principal resident exemption. So when you sell your, your residence, your personal residence, usually you can have an exemption, an exemption from the tax on that residence. Even if it's a secondary, it doesn't need to be your, your principal. As long as it is your personal residence that you live in it normally during the year, you can claim an exemption. If the business is owned by the corporation, you cannot have access to that exemption. So that hurts. I see. And having your house, I would say house, I would use the term house, having your house in the company can also result in double or even triple taxation. Wow. Now... I'm going to try to, it's easy to follow with a, with a pen and a, and a paper, but I'll try to do a little circle here. So let's figure it out. You have the shareholder that owns the company that owns the house. So there's two things. Either the shareholder will pay a rent to the company for living in the house. So if the shareholder paid a rent to the company, it needs to be at the fair market value. If not, it's got, there's going to be some tax consequences. So let's say you pay the rent. So the shareholder needs income. Otherwise, to pay the rent, I mean, he needs a source of, of income, a source of money. So he either needs to work for the business, which would be usually what happened, or work somewhere else, which would be a little bit weird. So he needs income that is going to be taxed on it, a salary or dividend, in order to pay a rent to the corporation. The corporation will need to tax himself on the profit from the renting of the house. Oh, boy. So the income rent minus the expenses. So we'll need to pay taxes on the profit. And technically, if it's a fair market value, you should have a profit. And then again, the business will need to pay to the shareholder for a salary or dividend in order for him to pay the rent. So the business will have to have other income otherwise or business otherwise to make income 
to pay a salary to the shareholder so that the shareholder can give that salary back to the business that's going to tax himself on the rent. And if it's a profit, ultimately the shareholder is going to take out a dividend. And you see, this is like a circle that you have a double taxation on this. And this is if the shareholder paid a fair market value of the rent. Like okay, I say, well, I'm just not going to pay any rent. That would be an option. What happened then? If the shareholder doesn't pay a rent, then the shareholder will have to tax himself on a tax benefit for shareholder on the highest between the fair market value of the rent or the return on investment. Wow. Or return on capital. So, Reggie, what do you mean return on capital? Because it happens, the decision, I think it was Youngman, the decision, it's an old tax case law. The guy built a house of like, I'm going to use random numbers, 1 million in the middle of nowhere, middle of a, cha- of a farm. Well, not a firm, but an So huge house, one million, but nobody would live there. So when he had comparable comparable for the fair market value, he said, "Well, one thousand per month should be it." The shareholder came and said, "Well, yes, you're right. The fair market value of the rent is one thousand. That's true. That's mean twelve thousand per year. But you took money from the business, one million. That if the business had that money, would add invest." And make 5% out of it. Oh. So your advantage is the company cut itself from a return on investment of 5% of 1 million. So 50,000 per year. So your tax benefit as a shareholder is not 12,000. It's 50,000 because the business doesn't have that money anymore. So you tax yourself on the highest of the two. Depending on the two, the CRE is going to go for the highest of the two. So this is one thing. So you pay no rent. Perfect. You're going to tax yourself as the shareholder doesn't end up there. The business is paying the expenses for the house. Right. So taxes, uh, maintenance. That is also a tax benefit for the shareholder. So you got a tax benefit because you don't pay the rent and the tax benefit because you don't pay the expenses, the business are paying them for you. Remember what I said about the expenses? The company is paying in expenses, but she's not gaining any revenue because you don't pay the rent. So the expenses is not in order to gain or produce income from property or business. So the expense is not deductible for the business. So the business needs to find a source of income to pay the expenses, and they're going to be taxed on that source of income. The expenses are not going to be deductible, so they're going to be a double taxation, and the shareholder will tax itself all the expenses and on the fair market value of the rent or the return on investment. So bottom line, just leave your home outside of the corporation. Yes, because when you realize that, you say, okay, I'm going to take out my house of the business. There's not a thing that is also complicated. Just taking out the house, way complicated because you cannot, well, you need to get a mortgage because the business cannot lend you the money or have a sell balance for more than one year after your year end, like the double balance sheet rule uh, when there's money owed by the shoulder to the business. Wow. So yes, complicated. So I think that paints, that paints the picture for me and uh, yeah, definitely not a thing to do. Reginald, that's a deep dive on tax myths. So there's certainly others that we didn't cover and many like misbeliefs out there. Like, are there any, before we wrap up, are there anything that come to mind? Anything we forget? Anything would you like to add? Maybe just one short story Sure. for self-employed that we heard a lot, I think, when you're working with self-employed, especially people that are starting their business. Several people that, that come to me or they come in general and say, oh, uh, I save money on taxes because I buy this stuff cash. So I save the sales tax. I'm like, okay, and what happened when you resell it to your client? Do you give any invoice or anything? Oh, yes, of course. I'm clean. I know I'm taxing myself. 
right? So you do realize now that by buying cash and reselling, like actually you're you're getting poorer as you do it than if you had an actual invoice. It costs you more than if you really had an invoice and you paid yourself tax. And some people self-employed, they don't realize that because when you're self-employed, the sales tax that you pay, you get a refund for them. So basically, you're not really paying them. You're paying them temporarily, but after that, you get a refund. So let's make a little example. Let's say you buy a table, $40 with an invoice. And uh, so after that, you sell the table, $75. So you make a profit of $35. You pay 20% tax personally. That means you pay $7 of tax. So the cash that you have at the end, you receive 75, you pay 40 to your supplier, and you pay tax, income tax, $7. So you have $28 in your pocket. Now, let's say we do the same scenario, but the self-employed person didn't get an invoice and save the tax, the sales tax on the buy. So even, uh, just a little precision, in my example, you had sales tax that were applied, but you received the sales, the, the sales tax that you paid on the 40 bucks, you received them, and the sales tax that you charge on the 75 bucks, you remit them. So therefore, they're not considered in the, in the formula. Now, let's say you buy the table again, $40, but this time, no invoice. Perfect. You sell it back 75 with invoice to your client because your client is an individual and he wants guarantee, he wants to prove that he paid that. When you do your tax return, you have sales of $75. You cannot use the cost of the table because you don't have an invoice. If you get audited, hmm. most likely your expenses would get denied. So therefore, your profit is not 35 anymore. It's 75 according to the law because you're not able to prove that you paid 40 bucks. That's it. And only the disbursement won't be enough. So you tax yourself on 75%. You pay 20% again. So you pay $15 of income tax. And when you look at the finance side, financially speaking, you receive 75. You pay the same 40 for the table and you paid 15 in tax. So in your pocket, there's $20 left. Wow. So two scenarios, but same thing happened. In one case, you had an invoice. The other one, you didn't have it. As a self-employed, in one case, you have $28. In the other case, you have $20. Now, I had two, three zeros after that. It's the difference between twenty and 28000 So that is something that uh, I hear sometimes, especially with the new self-employed at the first time. And when I do the example, like, oh, so I should get an invoice. Yes, you should. And also, you have the guarantee or anything. If something happens, you, you can go. If you don't have any invoice, good luck. <laughs> good luck going to a supplier and ask him to honor his guarantee or warranty or anything. Yeah, it's the same thing when you do repairs in your house, you know, like big jobs and you want to sell your house and substantiate that you've done the work. If you don't have a receipt, it's hearsay. It's like your word against the word of the other person. Always. All right. Reginald, thank you so much for your time. This has been a very good experience and learning experience for me. I'm sure it'll be for our listeners as well. You're very generous with your time. Gave us almost two hours over two episodes. So I do appreciate that. And thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. I had a great time. I really enjoyed doing podcasts with you guys. Uh, anytime you have any other question or any topics, I'm available. You've been listening to the Empowered Investor Podcast, hosted by Keith Matthews. Please visit tma-invest.com to subscribe to this podcast, learn more about how his firm helps Canadian investors, or to request a complimentary copy of The Empowered Investor. Investments and investing strategies should be evaluated based on your own objectives. Listeners of this podcast should use their best judgment and consult a financial expert prior to making any investment decisions based on the information found in this podcast.